And I told you that I wanted to take a little uh, exodus from Romans 8 in particular, even though it still goes right along with it, and talk about the importance of biblical principles in your life. We started that last week. And I showed you, uh, began to show you anyhow, that every week we're going to get a little more into it, but I showed you how to identify them, uh, how to find them, and then uh, what we're going to be talking about throughout all of our classes, no matter where we're at, is how to apply them. And so far we got a very good foundation, if you're following along with it, of key information to better know how that the Bible principles work in your life. One of the things I think that probably, and I, I don't know of anything we've ever done that I've gotten more reaction from uh, than, uh, you know, the biblical principles. I mean, all week long, Thursday night, uh, you know, just people have talked to me and asked me and showed me things that they have seen. And I, I showed you how absolutely crucial and how absolutely important uh, that biblical principles are in our lives. And I showed you that when you follow them, and remember, and this is, was, this is going to be key to the whole thing we go through. I talked to you about the four or five things that following biblical principles do in your life for you that makes your life less complicated. Let's face it. If you live in America today and you have a family and you have a job and uh, you're married and, uh, and you have all of the things that uh, go on in the issues of life, uh, some decisions are always going to have to be made. There's probably going, never going to be a time that you don't have some situation. Sometimes it'll be a problem. Sometimes it maybe won't be a problem. It'll just be a decision that has to be made. Sometimes there'll be issues that you have to make uh, as far as a, uh, a father uh, with your family. Sometimes uh, as a mother, you're going to have to make decisions, but they're going to have to be made. And I showed you what biblical principles, when you learn them and once you follow them, what they do for you. And this is absolutely vital. And I will probably talk about these over and over again so you'll get them down. First thing it does is it simplifies any issue. Many issues that we have to deal with, if they're dealing with your children or you're dealing with things in your own life, they seem very complicated and at times they can be very confusing. But the Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. And God has made a way to simplify any issue that you have to deal with, and the way that He does that is by biblical principles. And you say, well, why is that? Because biblical principles take the guesswork out of anything you're dealing with. You don't have a big X factor unknown. Biblical principles will show you clearly and will limit um, uh, the guesswork or completely take it out of the way of anything that you've got to do with the decision that you've got to make. Uh, one of the great things that it does is it removes our emotions out of it. As a parent, many times, dealing with your children, the things that you have to deal with, they, many times parents make a terrible mistake. And that terrible mistake is that they operate out of emotions. And they make decisions based on their emotions because of the fact that, that uh, that's the way that they operate. And that's a very dangerous way to do things. Uh, you, what biblical principles does, it not only will tell you exactly how you need to deal with any given situation with your children or whatever, but it also will uh, take the emotion out of the way, that you don't have to rely on your emotions. As we talked about last week, one of the greatest book verses in Proverbs that says, He that hath no rule over their own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Your emotions and my emotions are the biggest problems we have. And as parents, as husbands, as wives, as people who get our human beings, who get our emotions involved. Boy, making decisions based on grabbing at a straw 
an emotional outpouring of, I got to do something. Well, doing nothing uh, when you don't know what to do is, 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 is the best thing you can do. Do you get a clear biblical principle on it? Then we talked about how that it, biblical principles in any given circumstances, it takes the friends and the family out of it. Many times we feel peer pressure by our, by our families. But many scenarios where, and I gave you a great example, I think of a friend of mine down in Florida, uh, many times where, uh, you know, there was a right thing to do, but because the family was connected in it emotionally, and because it was somebody in their particular family, you know, they, uh, they overrid the biblical principles. And you can't ever do that. You have to stick with the book, uh, know what it says, no matter what. We cannot pick and choose what principles we want to use, is what I'm saying. And then the last thing we talked about was the fact that it took you and me out of it. Last thing I want to do is make major decisions about my life on my own. First 20 years of my life, I saw how that went. And uh, some of God's people never get past that, oh, and that's a tragedy. I guess the two words that using biblical principles do in these areas here do for you is they bring in the two key words that every Christian ought to have in their life, and that is discernment and discretion. Discernment and discretion, we know from the book of Proverbs, is what we get when we put God's principles in our lives. But I told you this. The only way you and I are 100% sure of any circumstance we find ourselves in, the only way we know 100% for sure that it's God and not you and me, is dealing with biblical principles. Because they take all of us out of it in the areas that we looked at. It's God's only way that He works. It's his more sure word of prophecy, as the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And I told you that, you know, as far as a church is concerned, real biblical leadership, as far as a church is concerned, is the ability, as far as, and this is how I look at it, I really don't care how much you know about the Bible. You may be able to answer every question on Thursday night, and you may know who the Antichrist is, and the date of the rapture, and everything in between. But that's, to my mind, that's not what makes a strong Christian leader. A strong Christian leader is somebody who has the ability to make hard decisions based on biblical principles when issues in their life face them uh, when there's an easy way out. And I've seen many, many parents not be able to do that with their children. I've seen them not to be able to do that with their family. And I've seen them not be able to do that with spiritual issues in their own personal lives. I showed you that biblical principles come in three formats. Whole books of the Bible, passages or stories in the Bible, and then what we call standalone verses. And I gave you a great principle. In fact, we have used this, you and I, we know who we are here, we've talked all the week, we have used this throughout the week, and it was Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18, where it said, every purpose is to be established by counsel. You ought to have a biblical principle for everything you do in your life to keep you between the white lines so you don't mess it up. And of course, the obvious question is, how do you learn biblical principles? And that's what our study is all about. And the best way I know how to do that is, uh, is uh, in, you know, is to, I've broken it down into five areas. And uh, well, last week we began to talk about our own Christian life, and we'll finish that up today. Then we're going to talk about principles in dealing with people, because we all have to deal with people. Then we're going to deal with principles in relationships. Many of you uh, want a husband or you want a wife. Many of you in time, you want, to have, you want to have a family. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there are certain principles that if, you're, if your number one goal is to give honor and glory to the Lord in your life, 
then there are certain principles that you have to follow because if you don't follow those principles, that ain't ever going to happen. So we're going to deal in relationships. And then we're going to deal with principles dealing with ministry. And then we're going to be dealing with general principles in all areas of our lives. And we're going to just try to give you a complete understanding of how all of that works. And um, so far, we've looked at a couple broad examples. I showed you the plight of America and showed you how easy it is to understand what's going on in our own country when you just use biblical principles. Then we talked about, in your own Christian life, how to know God. And I showed you how that uh, the idea is that God is some complex being up there that we can't ever attain to have a relationship with. Therefore, because of that mindset, we never have one with Him. But in reality, I showed you how that God has relegated Himself into seven basic principles. You take these seven principles, and we gave them to you last week, and you learn them, you'll know God. You take those seven things and exhaustively study them through the Bible, learn every attribute about them, you'll know God. And then if you want to be like God, you take those same seven principles and you become those. You put them into your own life. Now, a question arose last week, and several of you asked me this, and, and it's a great question. And I love it when, when you, you help me clarify things and you bring things up. Several people asked me last week, after last week's message, okay, what is the difference now between a principle and a promise? You see, now that's a legitimate question, because you hear me talk a lot about promises in the Bible. I talk about you should have a book of promises, and you hear me talk a lot about principles. So, the, the, the honest question is, what is the difference between a principle and a promise? And that's an excellent question. Let me explain it to you, uh, as, you as we go on. Now, you're going to find that there are certain verses in the Bible that go specifically to you. There's something that God gives you that means something to you personally. And we call those promises. Now, listen very carefully what I'm about to say, because here lies the key. All promises in the Bible are principles. All promises in the Bible that you have in your little book or in your heart, wherever you got them, all promises will be principles. Ah, but here's the key. Not all principles are promises. See how it works? I'll give me give an example. Last week I gave you Philippians chapter 4 verse 19, a great principle and a great promise. And that great principle and great promise is, my God shall supply all of your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now that is a principle. It's a true statement. The Bible's built on that. But it's also a promise, something that you can take into your life. But when we get over to Romans, uh, 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 Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, here's, a, here's an example of a principle, but it's not a promise. It's said in that passage that wisdom hath built, her, uh, built herself on seven pillars. That's a principle, but it's not a promise. I mean, you're not going to put that into your life as a promise. I mean, I guess you could, but I mean, I wouldn't think you would. But I mean, I guess in essence, you could, if you were, wherever you were, you could make anything a promise. But, uh, but not all principles will fit into that category. Here's an example. One of them is directly to you. The other one is a general statement about truth and how it affects everything in life. So that's the kind of things you want to remember, and I enjoy when people ask me that, because I think it really helps clarify things and gives you a better understanding. All right, now last week we, we got into, uh, we got into uh, uh, the Christian life. We talked about your relationship with God. I want to continue with that and show you a couple of more principles that you want to put into your life. Now, turn over to the book of Proverbs. 
I want to, now here, and I told you that uh, Proverbs is, is like the book of Job. Proverbs is a book that the whole book uh, shows you a format of how to put it into your life to be what God wants you to be. At the same time, Proverbs has individual stand-up verses and Proverbs has passages. But I want to take it from an, a standpoint that, uh, about your relationship with Christ and, and show you how these things work. If there was one book in the Bible, if there was one book in the Bible that if God would grant me uh, total recall where I could know it so well backwards and forwards that I would just have it memorized and apply it in my heart and life and everything that I do, it, I wouldn't have to think twice about it. It would be the book of Proverbs. As far as I'm concerned, uh, everything else in the Bible runs back to a principle found in Proverbs. And I think the key, really, once you understand the seven things about God, Proverbs, is, is by a, as a standalone book, is an incredible book as a book based on a principle of how it defines itself in your life. Look at Proverbs, and just kind of glance, glance, look at Proverbs chapter 1, look at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 2, look at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 3, look at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 4, look at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 5, look at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 6, and look at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 7. You see how it starts out? Every one of those chapters starts out, uh, my son. One or two of them might say my ch children or my child or something like that. But they're all, they're all start out basically by the designation, my son. Now, I'm going to give you something in Proverbs that, and I'm not expecting you to fully understand this today, but I'm going to give you something that you want to keep in the back of your mind and then work on when you, when you see these things. The outline of the book of Proverbs is really the outline and really the key as far as I'm concerned to you becoming everything that God wants you to be. Because in Proverbs chapter 1 through chapter 7, he starts out those chapters saying, my son, because he's giving you and me personal instructions. This is incredible. Everything in chapter 1 through chapter 7 is going to be about what the book of Proverbs will do for you once you understand it and get God's wisdom and God's understanding. It's an incredible seven chapters. That's why each chapter starts out with my son or my little children or however it goes. It's, it's directed directly at you and me. And you're going to find in those chapters, and we don't have time to go through them all, but uh, it would be a great Thursday night, and I told you we're going we're to do this tied into Thursday night with the questions you ask uh, that you can help lay all this out. You're going to find that in the first seven chapters, you find the format, a very basic biblical format of how to find God and get the wisdom of God. You're going to find the dangers that you and I need to understand and look out for. One of them is a strange man. The other one is a, uh, is, a, is a strange woman. You're going to find that those two characters represent something that you and I need to watch out for in life in the 21st century. And they represent something for you and for me. You're going to find in there, you're going to find the two words that I told you to get, discretion and discernment. Proverbs chapter 1 through 7 when he addresses you as his son and his child, shows you how to get those two. It's an incredible introduction to the book of Proverbs that basically says this, and I'll put it in, in everyday language. If you're my child and you want to have discretion and discernment, here's how you get it. And in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, he shows you the intricate workings of how to do that. 
He shows you what you should expect out of the book of Proverbs, all right? When you get to chapter 8, those, those, those subject titles are not there anymore. You don't find them in 8, you don't find them in 9, you don't find them anywhere else in the book of Proverbs. From chapter 8 to chapter uh, 30, you know what you have? You have, you have the one-liners, the, the standalone principles by which everything in life runs by. Every chapter is just, some of those verses in there will just make you sit down and take a deep breath because of the fact that they are so loaded. And some of them tie together. But if you want the wisdom of God and you want the understanding of God of how God views everything in life, it's Proverbs chapter 8 through Proverbs chapter 30. You see, the first seven chapters tells you how to get it, what you should look for, what you should watch out for. The middle section from, nine, from 8 through 30 tells you uh, where they're at, gives them out in detail, and then you come to chapter 30, uh, 31. And everybody knows what the chapter 31 of Proverbs is. It's the virtuous woman. All the sermons we hear on Mother's Day about mothers being virtuous mothers. And I'm, that's great. Praise the Lord. I'm happy for that. But there's more to it than that. Where Proverbs chapter 1 through 7 shows you how to get it. And chapter 8 through chapter 30 shows you where it's at and lays it out for you. Chapter 31 shows you the end result. The end result. The end result. Somebody asked me a question this week. Why in the book of Proverbs is wisdom always identified as a female? And she was hoping that my answer would be because women are smarter than men. And of course, <laughs> I hated to disappoint her. That's not necessarily true, though I, women are very smart. But the bottom line is, the reason why wisdom is called a woman or a female gender in the book of Proverbs because she represents the body of Christ, which is a, which is a virgin, which is female, which is the bride of Christ. So what we have in Proverbs if you want to understand this, there's a series of principles about the book itself. First seven chapters are principled on how you get discretion and discernment. The second set, chapter 8 through chapter 30, are the principles and the issues of life, one after the other. They're incredible. And then chapter 31 shows you the end result. You and me, as the bride of Christ, getting the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, and the understanding of God, and through that, becoming the virtuous woman. And in that chapter, there's probably no less than two or three hundred basic principles of what happens in your life and my life once we get to that point. And there's how, there's how you know, uh, the book of Proverbs lays itself out. You know, we're under the impression that the Christian life is so hard. We, we think, and we've been told this, we think it's so elusive, so unattainable, so confusing. Uh, a, guy, uh, a guy that used to come to church here, uh, you know, in and out for two or three years, finally pulled the plug and probably will never be back to church again. And, and his reasoning for it was the fact, he says, I don't understand how you guys do this church thing. I don't understand how you just stay with it all the time and come there every Sunday and all those things. And of course, you know, other than the you know, operation that he had that removed his brain about 15 years ago, the answer is real simple. The reason why he can't do those and you can't do those, because he's got one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity. And you can't survive that way. With God, you know what? With your, with, if you're married and you've got, you got a husband and a wife that maybe don't get along, and, and you, you, you can probably at some point come to a compromise and, and, and mediate the thing halfway in the middle, if you've got friends, you know, you know, the famous Christian quote, I love it, is not Christian about it, 
but I love to hear it all the time. This is how, this is how gullible Christians try to work the thing out so they can get around the Bible. They'll say this, well, we'll agree to disagree. See, that's a nice, soft, soap, nice thing. That's the Laodicean in church. Guy said to me a couple of weeks ago, well, we'll agree to disagree. And I said, well, I don't care if you agree with me or not. You're wrong because the biblical principle lays it out this way. I'm not, you know, I'm not mad at you. You're still my friend. But you know what? I can't help it if you can't follow the Bible through. In, in a lot of things in life, you can work it out. Christians can agree to disagree, so to speak, and still get along. But I'll tell you one place where you can't do that, and that's in your relationship with God. And you've got a simple choice. The Bible says, Amos chapter 3, verse 3, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And that's our basic problem. Christian life is not hard. We just want the best of both worlds. We want to live like hell throughout the weekend and have a relationship with God. It won't work that way. Because how can two, you and the Holy Spirit of God, walk together except they be agreed? The Christian, Christian life is not confusing. It's not unattainable. It's not elusive. It's not even hard. But just as I showed you last week how America's plight is not hard to understand and how the concept of God is not hard to understand, uh, the Bible principles making it very easy, neither is the Christian life. You know what? In my life when it comes to things in the Bible, and I've spent 35 years doing this, and I did it for me, not for anybody else. I just need it for myself. I know how the Bible and I'm not going to explain this very well, the Bible works down through levels of, 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 of laying things out. And for me, I've learned that, uh, that if I want the bottom line definition of something, I've got to find where it is at the lowest common denominator. You know how you take a number and you can need dividing it by itself and then you get down to the last number, you can't divide it anymore? That's the way Bible, the Bible works. The Bible has a lot of things that it says. And uh, you know what, and we, we define them different ways in different scenarios, but the bottom line is, if you'll, if you'll work that principle down through the Bible, it'll come to the lowest common denominator, or what I call the defining point. And what I've done, if you look at my Bible, is you'll find that over the years, what I've tried to do is, 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 is and I say it all the time, this is the, in Thursday night Bible study, or in Sunday morning, this is the defining chapter on this subject. This is the defining verse. This will be the defining word. And, and I've marked those in my Bible because for me, getting to the lowest common denominator where I get the bottom line definition, where there's no other layers below it. I mean, you could take the Christian life and you could say, I'll give you an example. Somebody could say, give me the definition of the Christian life, being like Christ. That's a good answer. But you know, there's lots of levels under that. You haven't defined that yet. You could even say, based on what I told you last week, you could even say, give me, tell me what, what a relationship with God is. It's keeping those seven things. That's true, absolutely true. But even that isn't the lowest common line yet. You could say, well, it's to find out in my life what God wants me to do and then do it. That's a great answer, but it's not the bottom line yet. Let me show you in the Christian life by the biblical principle, taking it down to the bottom principle and then showing you the principles in there how to make your Christian life a lot easier. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I've already seen how this has changed some of you. I've already seen how this has changed your perspective on things. In just a short couple of weeks, we've done this. If you ever grasp what I'm about to give you today, there'll be no stopping you. You know why you, you don't get the church thing? It's because you don't understand the bottom level of what Christianity really is. You think it's coming to church. 
You think it's loving God. You think it's tithing. You think it's this. You think it's that. You know what? All those things are important, but it's not the bottom line. I'm going to give you the bottom line. The bottom line of what your life, the lowest common denominator, is, is one principle in the Bible. And it's one word in the Bible. And it's the word stewardship. Do you know what stewardship is? Now, I know what you've heard if you've been around most churches. It's, it's how the preacher gets money out of you. And that's what we use. We use stewardship bags. We use stewardship pledge cards. We use this. We use that. We come up with everything to put a double-hour hammer locker on you to give you to give. So we use stewardship. Let me define for you what stewardship is in the Bible. Here's stewardship. And this is what your Christian life is. Bottom line. This is the bottom. You can, you can add everything else on top of this, but there'll be nothing underneath this. This is the bedrock definition of it. When Christ went back to heaven, everything that he had, everything that God gave him, everything that God wanted Christ to do and fulfill that he did not fulfill, everything that God gave his son, you and I now became a steward of it. You know what a steward is? A steward is someone who, 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 he has a billion trillion dollar business. He has assets in everything. He has money around the world. And he has a conglomerate that this everything and he wants, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to necessarily deal with it. So he gives it to a person and he says, you know what, you take care of all of my stuff. And you're going to find that uh, they, they had stewards in the Bible. And when a man was very rich and he had a lot of things that he was accountable for, he would pick one guy that he thought he could trust, and he would say, you take charge of everything I've got. And what I want from you on a regular basis is an accounting. I want you to come in to me and say, well, this over here, you made some money, you lost some here, you stayed the same here, you made a lot over here, and this is where everything is at, you got this, you got that, you got that. And he didn't have to deal with it, he gave it to somebody else to take care of what his stuff was, but there was going to come an accounting for it. Now that's, in a physical sense, what a steward did. Now put that in a spiritual concept of being the Christian life. You know what God did? He put Jesus Christ inside of you. He put the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. He put all things under your feet and He gave you all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And then God took everything that He had, everything that He had, and He asked you to be in charge of His goods. You know what your problem is? You think you're a doctor today. Or maybe you're a lawyer. Or maybe you're a nurse. Or maybe you're a fireman. Or maybe you're a policeman. Or maybe you're a factory worker. Or maybe you're a, a, an, an architect. Or maybe you're, a, you're, you're this. Or maybe you're that. And that's how you go through life. And if I would ask you today, what do you do? Well, what are you? What do you do? And you'd say to me, well, I'm this or I'm that or I'm this or I'm that. But the truth of the matter is, you're none of those things. If you're saved this morning, you're a steward. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. You all heard the old analogy, you know, that, okay, we're going to play fireman today. And uh, we're going to, we're going to, we're all going to, you know, I'm, I'm the fire, I'm the fire chief. And uh, we got a big firehouse here. We got a nice shiny fire engine. Uh, so what are we going to do here? Well, I'm going to give everybody a job. All right, Joy, you're going to drive the fire truck. Okay, remember that. You're going to be in charge of the hoses. Okay, you're going to be in, you're going to sit on the back and drive the back of it. You know, you know how that thing goes? Are you with me this morning? Are you, hello? Are you there? Okay. You're going to drive the truck in the back, okay? Now, Matt, 
you're going to be in charge. When we get off, you're going to get the hoses from her and you're going to hook them up to the deal, okay? And you're going to, and you're going to have the wrench that he needs to put that thing. And Pam, what you're going to do is you're going to stand out there and get the traffic so nobody gets down and runs over the hoses, okay? Everybody know what their job is? Okay, what's your job? 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 Nope. You're all wrong. You know what your job is? Job put out fires. See how the thing works? Your job put out fires. The fact that you got another job that you have to do ties in to the whole overall job. Your job is to put out fires. Where firemen, or in some, excuse me, fire persons, <laughs> politically correct. Your job is to put out fires. You may think you're an architect, you may think you're a lawyer, you may think you're this, you may think you're a doctor, you may think you're a nurse, you may think you're a factory worker, but in reality, you're a steward. Because God has given you everything that he has. And someday, at the judgment seat of Christ, you know what you're going to do as a steward? Yes, you're probably getting it now. You're going to give an account of your stewardship. See how easy it is? Now, I said that and I say this. As a Christian, life is just that simple. You have been given God's stuff. And you are to take care of His stuff for Him. You know what the problem is? You don't even know what that stuff is. You know what the real issue is? You've got too much of your own stuff that you ain't got time to take care of His stuff. Now, that's the Christian life in a nutshell. It doesn't get any easier than that. Now, in the Bible, there are seven stewardships or seven principles of stewardship in the Bible that we need to be stewards of. Seven being the number of perfection. And you know what the first one is? First one's all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. And this is the first time you find the word steward in the Bible. And the first thing is you're to be steward of is your house. And that story back there will be the story of Abraham and Eleazar. Eleazar was his, was his steward. And you're going to find that one of the reasons God picked Abraham to be the leader of the nation of Israel was because he had good command and rule of his house. And the truth of the matter is, you don't have stewardship in that one, you can forget the rest. So the first steward thing that you're a steward over is your house. You know what you find in Luke chapter 12, verse 42? You find the second thing that you and I are to be stewards of, and that is our perspective of God. Wow! Who would have thought of that? You know, there ain't a one of these that has anything that says money in it. The second thing you and I in Luke chapter 12 verse 42 are to, are to, be, uh, are to be over is our perspective of God. We're to be stewards of how we think and look at God. That's why I did Song of Solomon on New Year's Eve. I can't think of a better book in the Bible that shows you your perspective that you can be a good steward. In Luke chapter 16, verse 11, the next thing that you and I are to be stewards over is our time, my possessions, and in relationship to the Word of God. You know what he says in that great chapter? He talks about the, 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 the riches of the world and the true riches. Uh, and I just love the fact that the true riches in your Bible, the word true riches in your Bible, the word true riches in your Bible is found in Luke chapter 16, verse 11. Because the true riches you have in your lap come out of a 1611. The bottom line is this. If you can't handle your own personal life, 
If you can't manage your own budget, take care of your own family, take care of the balance of things out in, your, in the world that you live in, how in the world is he ever going to trust you with the true riches? You know why some of you will never learn the Bible? It's one word, undisciplined. You're not disciplined enough to do it. You know why you're not disciplined enough to do it? Because you're not disciplined in your own life to do the basic things of life, of taking care of the things of this world that God's entrusted to you and just in the area of life. How in the world is he going to trust you with the Word of God? The fourth one, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, is the mysteries of God. And, of course, these represent the teachings of the Bible. I might just say that uh, in the mysteries of God, you'll find that there's seven mysteries to the church and 12 to the nation of Israel, and they are basically the key to the whole Bible. The fifth one, oh, this is a great one. Stewardships of the manifold grace of God, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. The sixth one, Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Being stewards of being blamelessness. He says in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. By the way, the book of Titus is the key book of the New Testament that shows you what a good steward should be. He says in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. You ever try to figure that out? As a pastor, you're to be blameless, and yet how does that work when the pastor gets blamed for everything? He gets blamed for the things that he does, but he also gets blamed for a lot of things that he don't do. And you will too as you go up that line and, and, and begin to get to the place where you start to deal with people as you grow through the Word of God. And then, of course, the seventh thing, he's to be a steward of the nation of Israel. That'll be Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11. Now, if you are faithful, if you take these seven principles of stewardship and understand that as a Christian, you are accountable to God for these things. These are the seven things God left you with. These seven things encompass everything that he has, everything that he cares about, everything that he is. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's say you have to go into the hospital, and you're going to be in there for six months, and you're going to be flat on your back, and you got at home a couple of dogs, goldfish, parakeet. You got bills that come in every week. Mail comes every day. You've got house that has to be taken care of, and you're going to be flat on your back for six months. And you come to me, and you say, Bob, I'm in a bad situation. Would you help me? And I'd say, I'll do what I can do. You say, you know what? I'm going in the hospital next week, and I'm going to have an operation on my back. And they say, I'm going to be down for six months. And I've got my house, my dogs, my cats, my goldfish, my parakeet, my, all these things, plus my house, my mail, my bills. And I just, I, 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 there's no way I can do it. Would you take care for that six months? Could I rely on you? And I know it's a lot to ask, but would you take all my stuff and manage it for me for that six months? I'll pay you. I'll do, I'll do whatever you want to do. Would you, would you just kind of, you know, whatever you want to do. You want to live in my house. You want to do this. You want to do that. I don't care. I just need somebody to manage my stuff for six months till I get out of the hospital, and then I'll take it back. And I say, absolutely sure. So six months goes by. And you come home, and you say, I said, everything's fine. Took care of your house. I gave you the keys back. I said, I'll, I'll go in and show you here. You know, I made a few little changes here, but here, here's what we got. And you say, where's the dog? And I said, oh, I got, I got rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they were just too much of a hassle. You know, nasty. You know, dog hair all over the thing. I felt like it would be easier just to not have them here and I wouldn't have to clean as much. 
So I got rid of them. Then you walk upstairs and the goldfish is belly up in the bowl. <laughs> you know what? Must have been that ground hamburger I gave them, you know? <laughs> and you walk in the bedroom and <clears throat> on your dresser over there, you had your little jewelry box and you had your grandmother's wedding ring with her wedding pictures. And you say, what happened to this? Ah, I threw it out. You see, the problem is, I never really thought what was valuable to you wasn't valuable to me. When you looked at your grandmother's wedding ring, you saw something that was irreplaceable. When you had that, that wedding picture of her in that gown when she was, you know, 20 years old, with grandpa when he was, you know, 22, back in 1843, and, 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 and that was irreplaceable. You know what they say when, they, when, they, when, they, when a tornado falls or everything hits? They say, well, you know what? Uh, we got our photographs out. We got People like that. That's, that's your link back to your heritage of people. But what if I came in and said, who's this old geezer? <laughs> we don't need that. Well, look at this woman here. Uh, she's, we don't need her. And what is this stuff here? I bet I could send that off to that place on a TV that you put in a little bag and they go through and get you the gold and get four or $500 out of it. So you send it off. <laughs> you come back and you say, what did you do? Everything that I thought was absolutely invaluable, you threw it out as trash. You know why? Because to me... It wasn't valuable. Now, if I would have sat down with a list and said, how about these rings? Oh, no. How about these pictures? Absolutely not. But I never took the time to find out what you held so dear in your heart, and I just went in and trashed your stuff. Would you like it? Well, God doesn't like it when you don't take the time to find out what is really personal and precious to Him, and you and I through our life, when we're given the stewardship of it, we just trash his stuff. That's what we do. That's the Christian life. Now, is that hard? Does that take theological thinking? Does that take philosophy? Does that take hours in prayer? No, because the Christian life in its lowest common denominator is about one thing. You are a steward of God's stuff. And someday you're going to give an account. And there are seven principles in your Bible that show you what those are. And of course, the problem that God's people have, they've been saved 10, 15, and 20 years. I mean, is there any, don't, don't do this, but I'm just, I throw these out as challenges. If you've been saved 10 years or more, anybody want to stand up and give me the bottom line definition of being a steward of the manifold grace of God? You see, you can talk about the grace of God and all those nice things, but in stewardship, the manifold grace of God is the lowest bottom common denominator on grace. And the key word is manifold. Boy, I bet you know where it's at on your car. Just don't know where it's at in here. How about blamelessness? How do you be blameless when you get blamed for everything? What is the, how do you be a steward of being blameless? And how does a bishop be blameless as the steward of God when every time there's a problem that somebody doesn't like, he gets blamed for it, whether he did it or didn't? You see, this is the idea, this is the bottom line of the Christian life. You want to be a successful Christian? Then you find out who God is. Seven principles. 
You want to be like him? You take those seven principles and put them in your life. You want to find God's purpose in your life and you want to understand what God wants you to do with your life? Then understand, first of all, you're a steward. You're not a fireman. You're not a policeman. You're not a doctor. You're not a nurse. You're not a factory worker. You're not a secretary. You're not this. You're not that. You are a steward. And you're a steward of God's stuff. And then you realize that there's seven things that you and I are going to give an account for, bottom line, of stewardship. All right, now let's move into the next section. Let's talk about dealing with people. Now, I showed you last week, or I told you last week, as you get wisdom and you get understanding, God promotes you. You get to the place, and this is many, many examples of this in the Bible. Timothy in his own church is a great example of it. Uh, how Paul and Barnabas got chosen to be missionaries is a great section on it. But you get promoted. You don't get to become the pastor's buddy. You don't give a lot of money. You don't, in some churches you do. But in a biblical New Testament church, your promotion or rising up through the ranks, so to speak, is based on how much wisdom and understanding you get by getting into the book and getting your life operating by principles. And when you do that, you get promoted. See? God puts you in scenarios that bring you up on different levels. You've heard me say it for many, many times. But I want to say this to you. And I said this last week, and I'm going to reiterate it again. Nothing grows you faster as a Christian when you're into the book and doing what's right. Nothing grows you faster as a Christian uh, than getting you to the point when you're ready to work with me with people. I don't know of anything that does more for you will get you promoted through the system faster, will get you the wisdom and understanding that you need. And the reason for that is, is because you're working with what you have. You're not just taking it. You know a sponge is a, is a great invention. And you can take a sponge and you can just about mop up anything. But you know if you've done any sponge work, you know that you mop up so much and then pretty soon you just start pushing the water around. What do you got to do with that sponge to be able to take up more water? You got to take that sponge and wring it out. And you're just like that as a Christian. You can sit around here Sunday morning, Thursday night and sop up everything I give you. But there comes to a point if God doesn't have some way of wringing it out of you, you're just going to be like a big old fat sponge full of water that's just floating at the top of the bucket. And you can't take any more in because you can't, you haven't put anything out. And that's a simple illustration, but that's exactly where God's people need to be. And I don't know of anything, anything, anything that will get you to the point faster than working with people and dealing with their issues. And I'm very careful who I put in. I, I, I test you thoroughly. I watch you. It isn't a thing where, you know, you can be like that commercial for the, for the, uh, he had out years ago for the uh, transmission thing where a guy had a garden hose and squirted. I only wanted to fix the transmission. I, I, you know, I just, that's not what we're looking for. I watch you for a long time. I watch what you do with the Bible. I watch everything about you. But as you grow and you do the principles and you begin to have all these things in stewardship, even though you may not have them all down, because it's a work in process, I understand that. But you begin to deal with people and help them. Maybe starting in discipleship and then moving on up. Or there's times that there are some of you in here that if I had a person that came in and had a need, I know I could pick up the phone and call you right now. And I know that when I hung down the phone, you'd do it as good as I did it. That's what I'm looking for. And really, my goal is to have everybody in the church at that point 
even though I know that that's not a reality of life today, if it ever was. I know that ain't going to happen. But that's what it needs to be. And that's what, that's what it really is all about. And uh, it'll be the greatest single thing you ever do as a child of God. But at the same time, it will be in many cases the most frustrating thing you ever do. I've been in this business now for a long time. I've dealt with I don't even how many thousands of people in my life. And I've come to this conclusion. You probably got to go through 10 people to keep one that's going to make it. And you're going to find, and we're going to see why here in just a minute, because these are principles that you need to know. And I'm not going to get into all of it, because it doesn't affect all of you, but you need to understand these things. And you're going to find that you'll find, you'll find, you'll find one person that, that you'll find eight or nine people that will come in, and they say they want to do what's right, and then they just blow out after six or seven weeks, or they're in, they're out, they're up, and they're down. And then you'll find that one little jewel. You'll find out one little sweetheart gal, that one little guy who will just say, you know what, tell me whatever you want me to do. If you want me to stand on my corner in my head over there for 40 hours a week, that's what I'll do for God if that's what God wants me to do. Those are rare. And they're like, they're like, they're like pearls and oysters. But when you find one, I'll tell you this, and I'm just speaking now out of my own heart. When you find one, they make all the goofy ones worth the while. My point is this, working with people will be the greatest single thing you'll ever do as a Christian. No question about it. But at the same time, in many cases, it'll be very frustrating. You'll have people who, who just, very obvious that they don't want to do what the bottom line is. Now, here's the problem, or it's not, and I can't say that, it's not really the problem. Here's the bottom line. The ministry is people. The ministry is not this building. The ministry is people. The ministry is people. We don't have a choir, but if we had a choir, which we never will, but if we ever had a choir, uh, we talk about, you need to be in the choir ministry. The choir is not a ministry. I'm not saying they're not good, they're not nice to listen to, but not this, but not that. But you know what? You're the choir. Why should a select group of people up here sing so you can sit? And you say, well, I like to listen to it. Well, listen to the person next to you. Well, he's terrible. So what? See, I have a problem when you go have to be want to be in a church choir. You got to have you have a tryout. You see, the principle. And this is how simple it is. The principle says, "Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord." If you got to have a tryout to be in a choir to sing before people, that's your problem. You're not singing before people. You're singing before God. Now he's not here today, and I love him with all my heart. And if he was here, I'd say this: John Hill is the worst singer I ever heard in my life. He sounds like two broken gears with six sprockets left out of it with a chain off the lap. When I stand next to him in the back, I have to move over because my ear hurts when he's done. But you know what John Hill does? John Hill, to God, sounds like Pecky Kakayaki. He's the great opera singer. He sounds great. He sounds wonderful. You know why? Because his heart is the right place. And he's singing out of his heart, even though out of his mouth it sounds like something dumb busted inside, the heart's right. And I have a tough time, I mean, I have a, and I don't, see, but I don't listen, if we, we, and we don't, but if we did, if we had somebody up here that just sang and murdered the song, but I knew that person was doing everything they could because they love God, I think it would be the greatest thing that ever happened. And if I saw somebody laughing, I'd tore you out the back and make Joe beat you up. <laughs> Because a pastor can't be a striker. See. 
And of course, if you get the Bible bottom interpretation of that, it means you get three strikes before he has to go out. <laughs> but anyway, but, but, but to me, that would be everything. Because I don't, look at, I don't look at how good it sounds. I don't look how professional it is. I think the better it sounds and the more professional it comes, the farther God gets away from it. And the trap is that you can get trapped into that, that you think here's 12, 20, 30, 40 people up here who sing while everybody else sits out there and enjoys it. You ought to enjoy the person sitting next to you, no matter how good or how bad they are, because of the fact that it's coming from a heart that they want to let everything in half breath praise the Lord. Well, that's how it works. That's the principle on it, you see. That's the principle. That's the principle. The ministry is people. And the, 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 it's not about things that we do. It's not about, the ministry is people. And there's two principles that, that, uh, that ministry and working with people are built on, and it's simply two verses. And the first one's in Galatians chapter 6. You don't have to turn to it. You can write it down. First one's Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. The second one is Romans chapter 15, verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the only reason we exist. The bottom line of this church are these two basic principles right here. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are underlined spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And the second principle is Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, underline this, and not to please ourselves. You know why that's the principles that any church should be built on? Because that's the principles that God saved you on. That's exactly what Christ did for me. He restored my fallen state, and then now that I'm saved every day, He bears my burdens and affirmity through His strength. Now, why in the world should a church ministry be different than His ministry does? But see, now we're operating on principles, you see. Now you're getting it. The ministry is people. And your job and my job is to restore the fallen. Either fallen images or Christians that have fallen into sin. And then once we get them where we're at, we bear their infirmities and help them. Understanding that that's, these two things are exactly what God did for you and me. Now that mindset is what makes a good minister. That mindset is always what I'm looking for in a life of somebody who's going to work with me and people because at the end of the day, that is the bottom line. Don't get caught up in what they've done, what they're doing, where they're at. Don't get into that. You look at, and I'll teach you how to do the rest. Now, let me just say some obvious things. In dealing with people, you're getting into a world that is obviously not for the faint of heart, certainly not for a novice. I'm very careful who I ever put to work with who. And uh, if somebody ever says, well, I'll disciple you, or somebody says, well, let me disciple you, uh, and you don't, it doesn't come from me, but if, for your own sake of, of well-being, you better not have them disciple you. Nobody just walks around saying, well, I'll just disciple you, I'll disciple you. You're liable to get the guy with the garden hose who thinks he can fix the transmission. But in dealing with people, you're dealing in a situation that is not for a novice. You have to deal with, with them uh, uh, based on principles. I'm telling you, in dealing with people, nowhere will be that great verse, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where it talks about the heart being deceitful, wicked, and above all things ever come out than that. Now, when I deal with people, now I'm going to give you some principles, and some of you that have worked with me and you're working with me, you know you've heard this principle, so you can check out and take a nap here for about five minutes. <clears throat> Whenever you work with people, 
and this may be people at work or people in this church or however you work, but I always, first and foremost, which, and I've, I've taken all these out of the Bible. I've got about 300 of them. And I've got, but I, I've got them, I've named them based on my knowledge and my name. There's no biblical attribute to the name other than the fact that's how I remember them. But every, every time I work with a person, no matter who they may be, rule number one that I follow, the principle number one that I follow is called the Solomon Principle. Now, you'll find the Solomon Principle, and we don't have time to go through all of them today, but uh, it, Thursday night, one-on-one, whatever you want to do, you'll find it in 1 Kings chapter 3. Now, let me tell you how this thing worked, basically, real quickly. Solomon is on the throne. Two women come in to see him. You're probably familiar with the story. They got a baby. The one woman says, well, this is my baby. The other woman says, no, last night she had a baby, but last night she ruled over on hers, and uh, she killed hers, and then she snuck over and took my baby, and she's saying it's hers, and, and this is mine, and the woman says, the other woman says, no, it's my baby. The woman says, no, it's my baby. Now, the Bible's clear to tell you that Solomon, he's not, he doesn't know these ladies. And the Bible's also really good at telling you that both of them are harlots. So in bottom line is you can't trust either one of them. But obviously, one of them is telling the truth, and one of them's lying. And of course, <coughs> Solomon's faced with a dilemma. You know, sometimes in dealing with people, you're going to be faced with the same issue, only not with babies. You're going to have a situation where a husband and wife's going to come in, or you're going to have a situation where two people are going to come in. One's going to say it was this way, the other's going to say it was this way. And you don't, know, you don't know either one of them. Half of my week sometimes is spent with people who don't even go to this church or somebody else recommends them to me and they come over and sit down with me and I don't know them from Adam and, uh, and they'll sit down there and one of them will tell me their side of the story, the other one will tell me their side of the story. And I have no idea who's telling the truth. And you're going to find yourself in scenarios like that and this principle working everything in your life. You know what Solomon did? And this is where the great wisdom of Solomon comes in. <clears throat> Solomon didn't know who was telling the truth. <clears throat> he didn't know whose baby it was. <clears throat> so what he did is he called for a sword. And he said, well, I don't know how to solve this, but I do know how to solve it. <clears throat> Let's just cut this baby in half. Right down the middle, middle. You take the top half, you take the bottom half, and you'll both be happy. Well, the moment he did that, the sword and the threat of killing that baby, you know what it did? It produced the real mother. The one that wasn't the mother said, ah, go ahead and cut it in half. The one who it really it was the mother said, go ahead and give it to her. I.e., I'd rather her have my baby and be alive than lose my baby and you kill it. When Solomon saw that, he recognized immediately who was lying, who was telling the truth, and he took the baby and gave it to the rightful mother. And the Bible says, all of Israel wondered at the wisdom of Solomon. Now, i got to be honest with you. When I first read that story years ago, I thought that was pretty goofy. I mean, I thought to myself, what have they both said? Well, I didn't cut him up. But the wisdom of Solomon was the fact that he knew human nature. And he knew no human mother would ever, real mother would ever let that happen. And on top of that, the great principle for you and me, when you're dealing with people and you don't know who's telling you the truth, the greatest key was he brought in a sword. Because the sword, Hebrews chapter 4, is a picture of the Word of God. And when I have two people to come in and I don't know who's telling the truth, and I can't say who, what I do is what Solomon did. I put them under the accountability of the Word of God, the sword. And in time, the sword will always prove out who's telling the truth and who's not. You know why? Because the bottom line is the book is principles. 
And when somebody doesn't do, when somebody tells me one thing, but there's something other than the Bible says, then I know just like the mother that said, go ahead and cut it in half. That's called the Solomon principle. We're going to build into this thing. Now, along with that, and this is why you've got to have the Solomon principle, because the, here's the bottom line. When you start dealing with people, you're getting into human nature. And human nature is the most divisive, the most ungodly. I don't care, I don't care how well you try to pamper it, clean it up, or whatever you try to do with it. You and I, until Jesus comes back, will always have our old sin nature. And that old sin nature will all be ready, ready to go to take over everything in your life when you give it the green light. And that's just true of everything in this life. And you have to know that. And one of the things I found out is, uh, on a principle in human nature, and this is taught all the way through the Bible, is this is, why people, <clears throat> this is why people don't stay with it when they come in and they start to get the help that they need. It's a principle of human nature that most people want to treat their symptoms but they really don't want to solve their problems. They're like you and I. I had strep throat one time for six years and 16 months. You know why? I went to the doctor, he says, you got strep throat. Here's some antibiotics, it'll knock it out. Well, you know what I do? I do like you do. I took about half the pills and I started feeling better. And the pills didn't taste good. And so I quit taking the pills. And then I got sick again. Then I went back to the doctor again. He gave me some more pills, and I did the same thing. It was, it was two or three times before my, the doctor finally said, look, we're going to do this the rest of your life unless you take the medicine all the way to the end. You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to do what most God's people want to do when they find themselves in a situation. I wanted to treat the symptoms, but I didn't want to solve the problem because the, the concept of solving the problem it didn't taste good. It was making all your food taste different. Water tastes like it was out of the toilet. I mean, food tastes like it was bland. Everything, and I really don't know what it tastes like out of the toilet, but that's just a good assumption. <laughs> and everything was bland. Everything was there. I mean, the sweet stuff tasted salty. The salty stuff tasted sweet. It was just, and you know what? And I just said to myself, you know what? I'm feeling better. I'm okay. And that's what happens with people. And that's why you've got to have the Solomon principle. Because people will want to spend the time solving their, treating their symptoms instead of solving their problems. And let me just say this to you. That's where the Bible principles never fit in. Because the Bible wasn't designed. The Bible was never designed to treat your symptoms. The Bible was designed, ladies and gentlemen, to solve your problems. And when you have somebody saved or lost, who don't want to solve the problem but only treat the symptom, you're going to find that they'll enter into you into a mode of deception. The biggest problem you have as a person who's going to work with people, and I know that maybe most of you won't all get there, but if you, the biggest issue you're going to have is people trying to deceive you. And I don't mean that they're trying to do it on purpose. Sometimes they do. Majority of the time, I don't think they do. I think they're so caught up and there's such a pattern of human nature that they don't even understand. That once you understand how human nature works out of the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, then you begin to see, you know, how it really goes. And the problem is, you'll get, you'll get, you'll get one good one. You know, you'll get, you'll get, you'll get four or five that go along really well. 
And then you'll get one that, that, will, that you're not expecting. And this is why it's tough, because it's hard to keep your guard up. It's like being a police officer. You know, he works a 12-hour shift. He, makes, he works traffic. He pulls over 28 cars in one night. Everything is mundane. Gives them a ticket, writes them out. Some of them thank him. Some of them don't thank him. Some try to, but it's a deal. And then he goes to the 29th one, almost ready to go home. And he walks up, and after 28 just absolutely mundane one, the 29th one puts a gun in his face and kills him. You know why? Because he let his guard down. He had 28 good ones in a row that were nothing. But the one that finally got him was the one that he wasn't expected because the first 28 put him in a mode of passiveness. You can't ever do that when you're dealing with people. I don't suggest you do it as a police officer, but you can't ever do it as a working with people. You always got to be on your guard and always got to be looking for things because the principles, the principles, now, there's two stories or two principles in the Bible that show you all the details of how you can be deceived. And I want you to see these. I call these the Deception 101 and 102. And this is the way that it goes. I mean, it, I, I don't, and I don't know. It would be a lot easier to me if when God's people get out of fellowship, I think most churches just ought to have an out-of-fellowship section, you know? You come in on Sunday, you sit over here, everybody knows what you got. Everybody over here is out of fellowship. Well, good to have you here today, even though you're not hitting on all eight cylinders. Good to have you here, you know. You know, in the Old Testament, Leviticus, when they got leprosy, leprosy is a type of sin, you know. They had to walk around the camp saying, unclean, unclean. I wouldn't suggest that if you're out of fellowship. But maybe we get name tags. Hi, I'm Bob, not with it today. Good to have you here, see. <laughs> to me, that would simplify the whole process. But you know what? That ain't going to happen. That ain't going to happen. So you got to revert back to the principles and follow those principles. And, of course, this is some, this is some great material here that if you're ever going to get it. Now, in the first case study, and, uh, and, and you could turn back here if you want, or you can just listen and go back. I'm not going to get into a heavy detail on this, but I'm going to tell you the story, then I'm going to show you what you want to look for. These are principles we're talking about now, principles in dealing with people. Because if you ever get to that point in your life, you're going to have to deal with them. And deception is part of the game. Being, it's just part of the system. It really is. Now, the first one I called is found in Genesis chapter 27. And this would be the Jacob principle. Now, we all know about Jacob. Jacob, the word Jacob means schemer, supplanter. Jacob is a guy, he's a picture of a Christian, as a matter of fact, who manipulates everything all of his life. He's a picture of a lot of God's people who all of his life, he's, he's always trying to give God the credit for it, but he's always behind the scenes working it out. I mean, uh, if he's any picture of a child of God who's saved, but he's living in the flesh and always in control of his own life, like so many of God's people, it's Jacob. But within his life forms the pattern for you and me. And this is why now God allowed these stories to be in the Bible. He, Paul told you in 1 Corinthians that the things in the Old Testament were for our examples and our ensamples, that we might learn from them. And God knew that I was going to have to work with people. God knew that you were going to work with people. The ministry was going to be people. And when you start dealing with people, deception comes in. So he wants to give me some principles. Because dealing with people can look like it's very complicated. But it's not if you just follow the basic principle. First one's the Solomon principle. Second one is the, um, you know, the symptoms versus the problem uh, principle. But now, here's, here, here's what we got it here. Now, this story here, we know what happened. This is where Jacob schemes and puts together a deception to steal the blessing from Isaac, or from his brother, if he have to get it from Isaac. And when you start reading down through here, here's what you find out. And we don't have time to get into all this, but here's what you find out. You'll find that there's, there's always a plan behind a deception. 
Always will be. You'll find that many deceptions will go to great detail to fool you. And then you find in this particular story that uh, where did he learn deception? He learned it from his mother. And here's a great principle. Most children who wind up being deceptive were taught that by their parents. Because it's Rebecca here who hears what Isaac says and then gets Jacob, who's her favorite one, and says, here's what we're going to do. You know what that tells me? In this story, it's a picture of a real woman taking her real son and telling her how to scheme out of Isaac. In a practical, principle mode, you know what you got? You go that everybody that ever schemed in their life learned from somebody else how to do it, and it's an ongoing process. What you have in the story there is a very, very, very picture to show you how this thing all unfolds itself. Now Isaac got deceived in this deal. And the thing that we want to ask ourselves in studying these great principles is how did he and why did he? And the answer in a nutshell, and then we'll go back and look at it, is that he didn't follow biblical principles to the end. Now let me show you in this story what to look for. Now when you start to read this story, and the story again is somebody deceiving Isaac. Now Isaac is going to represent me and you. It's kind of like the Solomon principle. Solomon didn't know the two women. They came in with an issue. Isaac's almost blind. See? So this principle is going to show you when you're in a scenario that you don't see clearly, how do you keep from being deceived? I mean, if you got a blind man on the street corner and he's selling pencils for a dollar uh, for a dollar apiece, and you you walk up and say, "Well, I, I like to get two pencils," and you put you put two pieces of paper in about the size of dollars instead of not real dollars, you can deceive him. Of course, he may be deceiving you. He may say, "Hey, that's not paper. Give me some money." Say that happens too. You know, these guys standing on the street corner always begging for money, whatever the case may be. Now, it's going to sound cruel to somebody, but I'm drive down, when I drive downtown, I, I watched one of them one time. He's down there, and even though they all work their shifts, you know, they all have their three corners, it's like a shift. I walk one guy down there, no food, no nothing, need help, can't, going to die tomorrow, uh, maybe today, uh, you know, and all, something like that. And then, you know, we were parked at a light, and the shift changed, I guess, because, he, you know, his buddy came up, and he gave the buddy his sign, and then he starts walking away, and next thing I know, he reaches in there, flips out a cell phone, and he starts calling somebody. Now, I'm not being cruel in this, but this is the principle. I wouldn't do this, but I'd like to do this. But if I did it, just like some of you won't misunderstand me, most people will misunderstand, but it's the true principle. I'd like to wind down the window and I'd say, hey, you know what? If, if you ever get saved and God ever gives you and starts taking care of you and meeting your need, there's a great restaurant we're going to down here that's really got some good stuff to eat. Because the bottom line is, God, child of God will never be on a street corner like that. Because my God should supply all of your what? Need. See that thing? That's a principle. That's how people get shammed. You give them money. You know, I saw a report a while back that they said the average guy that does that makes something like $22,000 a year. What am I doing here? I mean, give me a break. I got a bad back. I can say wounded in Vietnam War and also in Civil War. <laughs> now, let me show you what to look for. Now, these are principles. These are principles. Isaac's not sure. Isaac's not sure. If you read this story, you'll find out that Isaac is not sure of what's going on. He's, he's thinking something's up. But the Bible says, 
he can't see because he's blind or almost blind. Now let me give you a principle. Turn over to Hebrews. You want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 4 for this. Here's this sword we talked about. Now, my answer to that is, so what? When you can't see what's going on, go to the book that sees when you can't see. Now, that's your first principle. I'm going to show you this. Keeping in mind, he's about to be deceived. In this deception, he's not sure. He ain't buying into this. I mean, the deception's a good one. I mean, they got to the place where Harry, uh, that Esau was a hairy man, and he, so he got a, a goat skin or whatever it was hairy and put on him, and he, 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 he's doing everything he can. But because Isaac can't see him, but Isaac has some questions in his mind. He's not sure. He's not sure. Well, there'll be times in your life and my life when it's just like that. Let me show you what Isaac should have done that he didn't do. And if you don't do this and don't follow this principle in dealing with people under the principle of deception, you're going to get deceived just like Isaac did. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. There it is. There's your Solomon principle. He put them under the sword. Sword's a type of the Word of God. The Word of God always produced the answer. Now watch out what the Word of God does for you. There's only two things I'm looking for in the last two things. The rest of them we're going to not even go through. But the last two things are what I want you to see. The last two things that the Word of God does for you when you can't do it yourself. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints of the marrow. Here it comes. And is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Look at verse 13. Neither is there any creature that's not manifest in his sight. You know what the Word of God does for you when you can't do it for yourself? It'll discern a situation and then it will manifest the truth of that situation. That's where Isaac failed. Isaac's not sure what's going on. But I want you to see what he wasn't sure about. And I want you to see in the deception what you always want to look for. And this is what the Bible will discern for you and it will always manifest for you if you just Follow the principle. And you can use this with your children. You can use this with your spouse. You can use this with any situation in life. You don't have to be a bona fide Christian worker to be able to use these things. Two crucial things here and in Genesis chapter 27, and they're found in verse 22. The first deception had to do with the hands. And the second thing is the voice. See, he had put a skin on. It was hairy. So his hands were the hands of Esau, but his voice was the voice of Jacob. And this is, what, this is what Isaac is confused about. This is what he's not sure about. This is where he's at. He's saying, everybody's saying, this is Isaac, uh, excuse me, this is Esau. Esau's come to see you. Esau's here. Esau wants the birthright blessing. He wants this. He wants that. He's, oh, he's him. But when he starts to get into the scenario, you know what he says? He says, well, your hands are the hands of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. Now, you know what you got there? You've got two principles you never want to lose in sight of Hebrews chapter 4, and that's this. The hands will always represent what you do. The voice will always represent what you say. Using the Solomon principle and the principles that I gave you, always when you're dealing with any situation, see if what they say matches up with what they do. You see how that thing works? Just see if what they say. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever you have inside will come out with what you do. If Isaac would have just pressed the issue a little farther, 
if he would have just taken a little bit farther, asked a few more questions, and not been satisfied with feeling the hands. And then there's another, there's a third thing in here. Now three in your, where seven in the Bible is a number of perfection, so God always manifests us in seven. There's seven stewardships, and that's the perfect Christian life and all that. Three in your Bible is a number of completion. So we got the hands, and we got the, uh, we got the voice. Now let's get the third one. Verse 27 again, or verse 27. And this is where he doesn't smell right. Do you ever hunt coyotes? You guys that like to hunt? Coyotes will smell you out. They'll smell you long before they see you. I used to hunt coyotes. That's a big coyote hunter. In fact, I, in my rough and ready days, I, I did a lot of things. I was a professional snapping turtle trapper. My wife can bear this out. I paid for Kelly's birth. We still lived in Ohio. We only, I only uh, didn't make very much money, and, uh, and uh, Dr. Bill was whatever it was for my baby being born, and I didn't have any money, and so I relied on my trapping skills. And there was a restaurant in town that uh, specialized in frog legs and turtle soup, and they couldn't get turtle soup or frog legs in any abundance. And I was an old-time turtle trapper, taught by the old turtle trappers of the old turtle trapping days, and I knew how to trap turtles. Snapping turtles. I mean, you're talking about, you're not talking about your little Ben and Gopher in your pen. I'm talking about snapping turtles that big around. I'm talking about snapping turtles, their heads are that big. I'm talking about snapping turtles that ever bite you, they won't let go. And uh, I mean, uh, you can be, I mean, they're, 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 they're very dangerous. But uh, I was getting four bucks a pound for their meat. And I would bring them home, and <clears throat> this is a true story. <clears throat> I'd go out and one day, I'd, I'd get maybe 20 or 30 snapping turtles. And you want a fun ride home, get 20 or 30 mad snapping turtles in the car with you. <laughs> I put them in burlap bags, and I'd put them out in the old dog pen we used to have out there, and I'd squirt them down with water, and I'd wait till I got about 30 or 40 of them, and then we'd butcher them. And, uh, and uh, one day, one of them got out of the bag and got in the garage. Now, my mother had just moved, and she had, and isn't this true, Barb? This is true. Yeah. And she must have had 200 trash bags, and, a big and it was a big one. It was a big snapping turtle. I mean, this would be a great movie, Night of the Living Snapping Turtle. I ain't kidding you, man. <laughs> and it got loose in the garage, see? And Barb had to go out in the garage and go to work. I parked my car out front. And she's scared to death to go in the garage because if you got real quiet and you just listened, you could hear that snapping turtle moving through those trash bags. Oh, yeah. And then you hear the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, you know? <sighs> you ever hear him hiss? Oh. You ever see him mad? You know what? You think they can't, they don't let that neck that long. In fact, that's the best part of eating, snap turtle neck. And uh, you know what? You, you, and I'll tell you what, and I'll tell you, you ain't going to believe this. I'd cut their heads off, and, I'd, and the way I would do it is I, they got a fastening on the shell, and that's where the meat's in inside the shell. And I'd take a hacksaw, and I'd start to cut that. After I had cut his head off, and their hands were as big as mine, the, the paw, the claws. I mean, I, you talk about Bigfoot. I found him, man, found him. And honest to goodness. I would take my hacksaw. Now his head was cut off. I take my hacksaw and I start to cut that, and he would reach up around with his thing and grab that hacksaw, so I couldn't cut it. Now a little bit later on, I found to get a big old pair of pruning shears, just sticking out, and just flame right out. But you know how you catch them? They they have keen senses of smell. I had a great production. I'd stop on the way home from work. Every piece of roadkill I'd pick up. I'd go hunting groundhogs, and I, you know, I loved to hunt groundhogs back then. I'd shoot them and, you know, bring them home. 
I'd put them in my, my I put them in the freezer down in the be had a big stand up freezer. Put them in the freezer and get them solid. Then I'd take them out after they were froze solid. Take an axe and cut them in sections. You don't want to cut them when they're not solid. You cut them in sections. Then I'd put them in trash bag, double line them, and throw them up on the roof of the garage for about three days in the hot sun. You know why? Because the smellier it is, the better the turtles like it. You throw that bag in that net in that thing with that meat rancid, and I don't care if that turtle's in St. Louis, he's coming for that thing. He will smell it through the water and be there in a heartbeat. When I used to hunt coyotes, coyotes would, I'd see them out there, they wouldn't come any closer. They wouldn't, they'd smell me. So I found an old boy. I, the old boys taught me not only the Bible, they taught me about snapping turtles, they taught me about hunting coyotes. One old boy said, well, you need some coyote urine. The master own smell, because they don't smell the coyote. And I'm saying to him, how do you get him to hold still long enough to get the coyote urine? <laughs> Excuse me, can I get a specimen of the bottle? I mean, what? what? <laughs> I know you're laughing. This is a true story. So he sold me some coyote urine concentrate. He had a coyote farm. And I got 55 gallons in a little jar. And all you had to do was mix it with water. And what I would do, you're laughing, but what I'd do, I'd take a Q-tip, see? And I'd mix me up a little coyote urine, and I'd put it down there, and I'd put it right down in my boot laces on both shoes. And I could go wherever I wanted to go, and all he could smell, wherever I walked, I masked my scent with some really bad coyote urine scent. Boy, did my luck change. Boom, 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 boom. I had a coyote coyote come up and, and think, well, you're kind of big for a coyote. Boom, yeah, I am. <laughs> Smell you before you see them? Ever take your dog out in a cold morning? My little Daisy, my little blonde lab, first thing she does, we got there, she puts her nose up, takes a big sniff. She wants to see if any danger is there. Because when you smell, when, you, when you're keen in smelling, then as an animal or a turtle or whatever, you can, you can find what you want and find the danger around you by just sniffing the air. Every child of God needs to develop your spiritual sniffer. Forget the coyote urine, but get a spiritual sniffer. Though we need to sell that in a bookstore, Rose. We're going to get some bottles of that back there. <laughs> Sniff the wind. There's three things that Isaac should have saw in a heartbeat. One was the voice. The voice didn't match the hands. And then the third thing that the Bible gives you was, he says, it smells like one guy. But it still talks like the other. You know what that, how important that is? It's because we already studied this on Song of Solomon, how, about the smell that comes off of a Christian, that is a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. How that a Christian is relationship with God, the smell of perfume, anise, of cinnamon, all of those aloes, all of those things that just come into a beautiful a smell of the, represents a relationship between you and God. Smells are very important in the Bible. And in this particular story right here, the three things didn't line up. One, the hands didn't match who they said he was. Two, the voice didn't match. And when you don't have the hands and the voice, the thing's going to stink. How many times have we said, something rotten in Denmark. Boy, that stinks. How many times I've walked away from situation or circumstance or something I've worked with in a counseling scenario, and I say to myself, well, what do you think, Bob? And I'd say, well, you know what I think? 
I think it sounds like Jacob, but it smells like Esau. Something rotten here. Something ain't right. You know why? Because when the principles don't line up in your life, you can't hide that. You can hide everything in your life but your true relationship with God. And if somebody knows what they're looking for and knows how that those three things have to line up and knows how to watch what you say and watch with your hand and then sniff the wind, you ain't got a chance. Now that's what God gave you and me to keep us from being deceived because people will deceive you. Now that's 101. Here's 102. Now this is called, this is called the Gibeon Principle. And this will be over in Joshua chapter 9. Now the next deception principle is found, like I said, in Joshua chapter 9. <clears throat> and these two main principles in the stories in your Bible lay out all you need to know of, of keeping from being deceived. And both these guys are deceived. Not only was Isaac deceived, but you're going to see here that Joshua got deceived. Now what you got in Joshua chapter 9... <clears throat> You know, Genesis chapter 27 is basically amorish. He's an amateur. Oh, he's a deceiver, but his deception is not very good. And you're going to find deceptions come in two or three different models. Jacob is a representation of the first models. A lot of work went into it, but it's not very good. He left too many loops, too many openings, <coughs> too many things that, <coughs> that uh, were too easy to discern. And you're going to find people like that, and those are the easy ones. But every once in a while, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Listen to me. You're working with people. Listen to me. Every once in a while, you're going to find a Gibeonite. And a Gibeonite is the best of the best. A Gibeonite looks so good, sounds so good, even masks the smell. Must have got his coyote urine in the same place I did. And he even smells good. Because here's a story that shows you the extreme position. Somebody that you work with that seems so good, so right on the money, so absolutely, incredibly there. But in reality, it's a deception. Now, I don't give these kind to you, but sooner or later, you may run into one. <clears throat> now, here's the story. This is called the Gibeon Principle. You're going to find in Joshua chapter 9 that <clears throat> all the nations hear that as Israel is coming through, they're just kicking a fire out of everybody and killing everybody. The Gibeonites are connected with these nations. And what they don't want to happen is they don't want to get caught up and get killed like all the other nations. So they go into a grand deception. They made themselves look like they'd traveled for thousands of miles for 20 years. This deception's got some work to it. They got old worn-out shoes. They got ragtag clothes. They even got moldy bread that the Bible says was fresh from their ovens the day they left, but they let it mold and look like it was stale so they could give the deception that they've been traveling for six months, a year, our clothes wore out, my shoes are gone, look at our bread, it's all moldy, when in actuality, it was a sham and a deception. Oh, yeah. This one's a good one. And they got a great story to go with it. All deceptions have a great story. 
You notice what Jacob did when Jacob got the deceiving? <clears throat> you know what he did? He brought God into it. Because when you bring God in it, it's, why, why, how, you know, well, somebody, would, somebody that didn't, did, did do something and doesn't want to take uh, responsibility for it, he said, I swear by God I didn't do that. Oh, okay, well, that's it. I swear by God that we're good to go. Everybody, it wasn't him. Okay? Bringing God into it in their minds brings credibility to it. So you find that's what Jacob did. And this is the story the Gibeonites got. They go on and on and on about how great we've heard your God is. And oh, how wonderful he is and how you are great people of God. And we started out to find you. Oh, and we've, we, we had new shoes and new clothes and all kinds of food. And, and now look at us. We're a ragtag group because we're really trying to find God. And it was a deception. Now, how do you survive in something like that? In dealing with people, sometimes you're going to find a Gibeonite. I mean, it all looks good, but they made two vital mistakes. And this is what you, these are the principles. Here's what you want to look for. Now, the first red flag is very subtle. But boy, I'll tell you what. If you know people, you know, I follow a basic rule in dealing with people. <clears throat> I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I follow the basic principle that Isaac didn't follow in, in over there in Thessalonians where it says prove all things. But I'll give you, I, I will, no matter what I may think in my mind, I know that I, I'm not going to get hurt by it because as long as I do what's right, you're not going to hurt me or the church any way, shape, or form. So I don't really care. I realize that my job is to give everybody an opportunity and let you prove yourself. And though, even though I may think in my mind this doesn't look right, I'll reserve judgment on that and put that in the back of my mind and just dismiss it and say, you know what, everybody needs to get a fair shot because I don't have to worry about it because they'll, they'll reveal who they really are in time. And that's just that's the way I do it. I, you know, I kind of expect the worst and pray for the best. You know, and, and, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But you never take anything for granted. Now, when you come down through this story in verses 8, 9, and 10, 11, and 12, here's your first red flag. Joshua asked them two direct questions. Two direct questions. The first question he asked was, who are you? That's what Isaac asked Jacob. A little bit later on when God and Jacob got together, that's what God asked Jacob. And that's what Joshua Ask them. Joshua's a type of Christ in your Bible, you know. So that's the first thing Joshua asked these guys. Who are you? The second direct question he asked, where do you come from? And when you read down through after that, they never answer those two questions. They never answer those two questions. Instead, they go into a song and dance about God, how great he is. Look at our old stuff. Boy, we just, we've been, we've been out there. They never answer the two direct questions. And that is a paramount concept to understanding with people that when you start to work with them, one of the things you steal is they really don't want to solve the problem. They won't really answer the question that is the real issue in their life. They'll start going off about how much they love God, how great God is, how this or that, how this or that, and then tell you the whole sob story of where they come from and all the stuff that goes along with it. And of course, 
Let me show you. They missed that one. I mean, this is a sham. It's a very convincing sham, but it's a sham. Nevertheless. It's a lot like Eve in Genesis chapter 3 when she has Cain and she says, I've got the man from the Lord. And then the next boy is born and she doesn't say anything. And Cain certainly wasn't a man from the Lord. Okay? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the first mistake they made is they didn't see the subtle red flags go up when he asked them two direct questions, but they wouldn't answer him, but they always bring God into it and all of this or that and tell you a nice story, but they never answered the real issue. And then here's a second problem in verse 14. Look at, if you've got your Bible open to it, look at verse 14. If not, I'll read it to you. And the men took out their victuals. That means they looked at their moldy bread. Now here it comes. This is Joshua's people now. And the men took of their victuals, looked at them, saw the moldy bread, saw the clothes, saw the shoes, and here it comes, and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. You see that thing? They didn't take it to the book. They went on what they saw instead of the principles in the Bible that if they would have said, Lord, what do you think about these guys? You know what God would have said? They're a sham. But they went with what they saw. They bought the old story. They bought the shoe. They bought the bread. They bought the clothes. And when they looked at the vittles, they looked at each other and say, well, this has got to be right. Somebody said, don't you think what they asked the Lord? Nah, don't bother him today. And they got deceived. That Bible principles will always discern the heart. And will manifest the truth. When the old clothes were there, the old bread was there, the old shoes were there, and the old bags. Now, let's leave their wives out of it. When, when, no, when the old clothes were there, when the bread was there, when the shoes were there, and even the bags they had had holes in it. Don't follow what you see. Follow the basic principles. Ask the questions. Wait for the right answers. And always go to the book and follow the principles. Now, here's another more common one. This will be the last one we'll do today, and we'll get out here. Here's another more common basic issue that you're going to deal with in the principles that you use. And when you start to deal with people, <clears throat> this, goes with the, this is, goes with what I call the world of professional Christians. This deals with all the, <coughs> all, the, all the Bible babble psychologists and Christian counselors and all the junk that goes along with it. Let me give you a basic principle. Let me just give you a basic premise. I'm going to say this. The same book that fixed your soul before you got saved by saving you is the same book that will fix your sin problem after you're saved with your walk with God. Now, you need to write that down, and you need to remember that. That was our two great principles. The same book that fixed your sin problem before you got saved by saving you is the same book that will fix your sin problem after you're saved and keep you walking with God. I had a Christian psychologist one time, and this is the standard position. <coughs> And he was a saved man. And his position was this. And this is the position of all of them. This is why you need to stay away from them. The position was this. The position was, well, I believe the Bible's truth. I just believe that there's more truth outside the Bible. That was his position. That is a very dangerous position to be in. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is no truth outside the Bible. Now, when you start getting into people's problems... <coughs> You're going you're gonna to see that they want to solve, you don't want to treat the symptoms, but they don't want to solve the problem. And then we're going to find another issue, and this issue is going to be what I call the ASA principle. Now for this, we want to go back to 2 Chronicles, you want to go here, or you want to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. Now, <clears throat> let me tell you why, very briefly, why you're turning there, why a person has problems. Because principles make it very easy. 
And those make it very, everything so far we've taken has been very complex. We've made it very basic. Why does God, why do people have problems, saved and lost? <coughs> Here's the bottom line. <coughs> if you're an unsaved man and you're an unsaved woman here today, and you're depressed, or you have all kinds of issues, or you have all kinds of clutter in your life, or your life is just an absolute downhill slide, and you're an absolute mess, and you can't get anything going in your life, <coughs> let me tell you Bottom line, very basically, very easily, very principled, why you are the way you are. It's because you have not gotten saved. You've not put the only thing in your life that could satisfy you. And what did you do? You went out and tried everything else in the world that somebody else told you would satisfy you. You went the bar route. You went the drinking route. You went the dope route. You went this route. You went that route. You went the things route. You got everything in your life that you thought because everybody told you that'll really make you feel good. And now you've got all that clutter, all of that stuff. You've invested 20-some years of your life and it has failed you. You want to fix your problem? Get God in your life because He's the only one who can fix it and make you fulfilled in what you do. It's that simple. Now, are you a saved person? Are you depressed? What? How in the world does a saved person get depressed? Show me one person in here who went through a lot worse things than you went through and I went through. Ever find a depressed passage in the New Testament? You ever see where Paul was going in to see his Christian therapist? You ever see where Paul was, 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 was going to see a psych, Christian psychiatrist because of the stress that he was under? You know why God's people have problems? Well, almost like the same reason unsaved people have problems, but with a little different twist. You know why you and I have problems? Because after you do get saved, God's got a purpose for you, and the Holy Spirit of God is living inside you. And when you don't fulfill that purpose... You grieve the Holy Spirit of God to the point where it manifests that grieving in your life. And I'm going to show you in a few minutes in, a, in an incredible way. Now let me show you the Asa principle. Second Chronicles chapter 16, I told you. Let's look down here at verse 11. And behold, the acts of Asa, first and last, lo, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? And Asa in the thirty and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceedingly great, yet in his disease he sought not the Lord but to the physicians. There, there's a guy who's the king of Israel He's got a disease in his feet. Now, that'll translate for you and me, our walk with God. That's a picture of a Christian who has a walk, has a problem with his walk with God, but he won't go to the Lord with it. He goes to the physician, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine. He doesn't want to solve the problems because the Bible doesn't deal with symptoms. The Bible deals with fixing your problems. Verse 13, and Asa slept with his fathers and died. He died. He died. Now, I don't even know where to go with this. There's so much in here. He has a disease in his feet. Picture of our walk with God. Psalms 119. Every time you find a feet in the Bible, it's going to be a reference to your walk. Psalms 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
But instead of going to God, he goes to doctor of psychology, doctor of psychiatry. He goes, to, he, goes to the, he goes to all the things that go along with it. Now, there's some great things in here. I love this. Look down here. Ah, just, this is why I love the Bible. And Asa in the 39th year of his reign. Let me ask you a question. How many books of the Bible in the Old Testament? Anybody know? 39. You know what that's telling me? That's telling me he had everything in the books he already had to fix his problem. He had everything he needed in the Old Testament to fix his problem. How many words in Old? How many words in Testament? 39. You're not going to beat the book. And it's, it's no accident that again, that in 2 Chronicles 16, 11, where Asa won't go to the book and the principles, but he goes to the physicians. How many books in the Old Testament, John? 39. Three in Old, nine in Testament, 39. Somebody said one time, well, the, Old Te- the New Testament is contained in the New Testament. That's true. What do you got when you multiply three times nine? Twenty-seven. How many books in the New Testament? <laughs> you got the right book. You got it. But you see, look at verse three. His, his time is just like our time. Now for a long season Israel had been without a true God and a teaching priest and without the law. So he has been trained and taught not to go to the Lord. He goes to the physicians and he dies. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. The same book that fixed your sin problem before you got saved and saved you is the same book that will fix your sin problem after you get saved in your daily walk. Well, we're going to hold up there. I'm going to. We'll get into the rest of this next time. But you're beginning to see how these principles work. You learn biblical principles, and the fastest way for you to learn them is by experiencing it with working with people. Seeing these things that I talk to you about, it's one thing for me to read a story and give you a message, and it becomes just like an academic of me in a science class uh, talking about the nine planets revolving around the sun, and you got a concept of it, but, but you never, when you get out on a rocket ship far enough away and saw all nine planets going around the sun, it'd make a whole different perspective. It's one thing to give you the academics out of a book and show you the principles. But when you're working with people and you see these things every day, working with them the way they are and how they play themselves out, that's how you use biblical principles. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.